Hello everyone, this is Kavita. I am here today to introduce our episode with Dr. Malad Namari, who is one of my colleagues in the field of internal medicine. He is here today to talk about social determinants of health, which I myself didn't have a good understanding of or a good framework for until we really started to talk about it more in this episode. Malad starts off by talking about a position statement that he wrote for a national professional organization. And then we kind of just start talking about different stories of how social determinants of health have affected the lives of our patients and scenarios that we envision where they could affect the lives of other people that we don't know. It's a really great kind of casual discussion between the three of us, and I really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast Against Disease. I am one of your hosts, Cody Weston. With me today is Kavita Chapla. Hello, everyone. Today we are going to be talking about social determinants of health and why they're important. Our guest for today is Malad Memari. He is an internal medicine resident in his uh, final year at Johns Hopkins Bayview. And he, like me, is very interested in general internal medicine, so more like primary care and he is also very interested in medical education, so inspiring and educating the future doctors of America. Milan, we're so excited to have you. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, we too are interested in educating people, so I think we can find some common ground. <laughs> Sounds good to me. K-Chaps, do you want to field the first question? Yes, yes. So the reason that we asked you on the podcast today, Milad, is because you have been working in the larger organization of general internal medicine called the Society of General Internal Medicine, and you've helped write a position paper on the general internist role in social determinants of health. Can you tell us briefly what the Society of General Internal Medicine is and what a position statement or position paper is before we talk more about what you wrote? Sure, yeah. So the Society of General Internal Medicine is an academic leadership group uh, formed, as, as you said, by general internal medicine doctors, which can be primary care doctors, they can be hospital medicine doctors, but generally they're at the front lines of patient care. And what happened was a lot of what was going on in our society was coming to our front lines our practitioners were telling us that we need to make a statement. And so in this case, a position statement came about very organically, came as a result of us recognizing within our society that there are changes that are affecting our patients. There are systemic effects that have existed for a long time. And it's the right time for us to come out and say what we think internal medicine is a field, but also as one of some of the primary caretakers of these patients, how we should approach these issues faced by our patients moving forward. I think in terms of this particular statement, 
a lot of groups within the Society of General Internal Medicine. So for instance, I'm part of the medical education group, but there are other groups that work on research. There are other groups that work on uh, primary care specifically. All of the groups came together and tried to make a statement that was comprehensive and really addressed the many ways in which our patients and the people all around our country are affected by different aspects of society, their health outcomes are affected, but also what we as a society can do in order to try to address those moving forward. And I think it's important to not only put a name to that, but come up with a coherent plan to address them moving forward. It's fantastic that you in this leadership group of physicians on the front lines, that you guys recognize this and it came about very organically. Can you tell me a little bit before we move on to what social determinants of health are about the process of writing the physician statement? How did you guys get the information? Did you guys have a lot of meetings with back and forth to discuss? How did how did it come together? Yeah, so as you mentioned, there was a lot of a lot of folks kind of came together organically. So the leadership of the Society of General Internal Medicine identified this as an important policy statement to work on. What they decided to do in part of this process was invite all the stakeholders within the society representing different aspects of internal medicine to come together. And there's a long process that involved each of us going to our individual constituency groups, coming up with the important ideas that we thought should be represented by the society as a whole. And we came together, we met, we revised, we brought in outside groups and made sure that this statement was something that was representative of our society as a whole, but also something that took into account that a lot of times, a lot of interventions that are done with the best intentions, the best meaning, have unintended consequences, that the ultimate byproduct of considerations may not always have positive outcomes. So making sure to take into account those things before putting out a statement. This is intended for the general internal medicine audience. So a lot of the folks that are taking care of patient populations that are most affected by unfortunate circumstances of society, which I know we'll get into further. Very cool. I think that process of creating the statement is so powerful because you talk to everybody and got everybody's consensus and talk to people who are outside of your specific group. You know, it'd be cool if we had more journalism or health policies that were made that way. I I was actually kind of curious, was there a lot of controversy or what was your experience, Milad, of how the different voices in internal medicine came together? Was there significant overlap right away or did it take some time to whittle down to the core principle? Well, I think we were very fortunate uh, as part of our group to have a lot of real leaders on this particular topic, folks that have been um, engaging in research relating to social determinants of health, folks that have led at the front lines of policy on this front. The president of Society of General Internal Medicine, Karen DeSalvo, is a former member of the Obama administration, was in leadership in the health and human services. So she certainly brought a lot of policy background and know-how into the discussions. But there are a lot of amazing researchers, a lot of clinician leaders from all around the country within internal medicine that really brought a rich amount of background and knowledge into the discussion. 
it really was a situation where everyone was on the same page. The real interesting discussion was how we wanted to approach it in order to make it a meaningful addition to what is already a rich national discussion, particularly at a time, which I'm sure you guys will agree with right now, every kind of group around the country is considering this topic, considering how we can add something to the discussion in a meaningful way and really find a path forward that incorporates what we know has been ongoing a lot of times in our country since its birth and incorporate those ideas, learn and listen and come up with ways in which we can all work hard to make things better. So I personally learned a lot through this process, coming at it from the education lens, but certainly learning from all the other leaders in that in that group. But really, there wasn't a lot of controversy in terms of what we know needs to be fixed. I think the way that we have to look at it is what can we do to effectively address these issues moving forward. Milad, what are social determinants of health and why are they important? Yeah, so I particularly uh, like the definition of social determinants of health that comes from the New England Journal of Medicine Innovations and Care Delivery website. They describe social determinants of health as the complex circumstances in which individuals are born and live that impact their health. This includes intangible factors such as political, socioeconomic, cultural constructs, and place-based conditions. So that's access to healthcare, education systems, environmental conditions, neighborhoods, availability of healthful food. In summary, I would just describe it as what are all of the circumstances from someone's birth to their death that interacts with an individual and affects their health? And you can imagine just a short list of things won't really be able to do justice to that. So I, I like to take kind of a broader approach of what are all the ways in which we can see health intersecting with everything around us. It sounds like there are a number of important categories here. Um, the first one that comes to mind to me is things like drinking water, of course. Coming from Michigan, the Flint drinking water-led situation that is to my knowledge, still not fully resolved. And I've just been doing some reading about a uh, the effects of lithium in ambient drinking water, and they found that that may be associated with lower rates of mortality uh, just because of the uh, psychiatric effect, even at those low concentrations. But uh, wow. I digress that's very interesting. slightly. <laughs> no. no, that's interesting. I agree with you guys that this is kind of a huge topic it's basically everything outside of somebody's biology and even somebody's biology that affects their health so i think it would be helpful to go through the example that we have in the position statement that you worked on Milad. i was going to briefly describe the example and then i would love it if you could talk about all of the different social determinants of health that affect this person sure that sounds great okay so the example that they talk about is a woman who's 67 years old. She has high blood pressure and she comes into the clinic and she says, I'm feeling really dizzy. She is somebody who came to the clinic a month ago and she was also feeling dizzy. And you check her blood pressure. It's a little bit lower than the usual. She stopped taking one of her blood pressure medicines because you said, okay, your blood pressure is a little bit better. Stop taking it. And then she still felt dizzy. 
And then you looked at other things. You looked at an EKG. You looked at the rhythm of her heart. You examined her from head to toe and asked her more about how she's feeling, why she's feeling dizzy. And she tells you that her daughter and grandchildren recently moved back in with her because their rent was raised and they couldn't afford to stay. Money is very tight. The local food pantry is only open one day a week, and sometimes the line is so long that she can't go there and wait and miss going to work on time. So she stopped eating. Her landlord has now found out that she's got all these new family members living with her, and they're not on the lease. This is not sanctioned and is threatening to evict them. That's the end of the scenario. Okay. Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot here. Uh, Milad, how do you want to approach breaking this down? Yes, I think what's important is for us to realize that the circumstances that this patient has just described to us are not isolated to her particular circumstance. They're the results of things that have happened long ago. And in the terminology used by the sociologists that are kind of experts in this field, it they use upstream and downstream effects. So a downstream effect for this patient may be the neighborhood that she is living in and the food pantry that is available to her and the specific aspects of her care that are relating to where she lives. But looking upstream, one would look, you know, 50 years ago, her neighborhood may have been where a lot of folks with her particular background had to live because of federal redlining policies, for example, um, that prevented certain people from living in certain areas. The community that she has been in, the available foods, the education of the average person in that area, financial challenges that exist can all be a consequence of things that have happened 50 or 100 years before. Once you start thinking with that lens, you can imagine things There are many things upstream and the question of how far you want to take it. But realizing that the circumstances that each of the individuals that come into our care aren't isolated to them, but really dependent on many factors, mostly outside of their control, that are historical and structural. Thinking of these structural uh, aspects of what this patient is facing and the cumulative effect of those stressors is important to really contributing to her health in a positive way moving forward and understanding the circumstances that the patient is facing. In internal medicine, particularly in the primary care setting, but also in the hospital, you interact with patients that may or may not be dealing with certain financial challenges, maybe dealing with social circumstances that make it difficult for them to prioritize their health, to adequately get medications, to treat their health conditions, and in many other ways have negative consequences on their health. What's important and what this policy paper tries to do is to take action and define the role of the physician and define the ways that a physician can actually contribute positively to a patient that is experiencing the consequences of things that have preceded them and are structural in nature. I, I hope we'll get to some of the specifics of how the the position paper lays this out. I'm immediately curious about how we can define the scope of our role given that we have this one-on-one relationship with patients sometimes 15 minutes at a time if we're lucky and many of these factors are they they seem impossibly far beyond the reach of even the most well-meaning and ambitious physicians Um, 
how are we going to extend into communities and structures and affect any kind of meaningful change rather than just treating the end downstream symptoms, if I'm using that term correctly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It's really difficult, particularly as individual physicians dealing with one patient at a time under the circumstances you described to think that we're going to make large scale changes. And I think as practicing physicians, what we can do is work with other providers and, and interprofessional care teams to try to help the patient in ways that are beyond just giving medications and treating medical conditions. So that might mean in a certain community, working with community health workers, working with social workers, working with mental health providers, other providers that can actually help us address a lot of the other issues that our patients are facing that are affecting their health, but may not be specific to their health. So I think that's one aspect or one way that we can try to work on the front lines. But it's also important for us to realize as physicians that we do have a broader voice. Uh, we're health systems leaders, so we can work with communities, organizations, hospitals to try to change the way that we approach patient care. And some of that may include the ways that our workplaces treat diversity and inclusion just within the health care force. Um, there's evidence to show that that physician diversity actually improves patient care outcomes, particularly in communities of color. So there are ways that we can use systems-based approaches to help. As educators, that's my particular interest. I'm interested to see if there are ways that we can leverage both undergraduate and medical school to come up with new ways that we can teach our future providers and practitioners to approach these issues, understand that there is a structural component to these inequities and see if we can come up with ways to improve them moving forward. There's also a lot of research that can be done in this front. I certainly think as medical researchers, we can study these issues further. And I think given that most of these issues, you'll find that the CDC's research has really been incredible, but a lot of the research that has been done has been done in the last 20 to 30 years on this particular topic. We know that there's a lot more that we can learn, and even the information that we have learned so far has really guided a lot of our care at the present time. So I think we can advocate on many different levels and use our position as physicians to hopefully try to make a positive impact on a larger scale than, as you mentioned, just the, the limitations that we have in a particular patient situation are definitely present. I think I tend to be on the optimistic side in saying that there are many ways that we can affect things on a larger scale, knowing that these upstream effects are a lot of times a result of policy decisions, such as uh, the example that we gave earlier in redlining. I think that informs our care and really makes us recognize that we as physicians have to play a role in policy decision-making and have to have our voice heard because a lot of times we're the ones that are speaking for a lot of our patients that may not have that voice, particularly in the political and advocacy front. So I think taking that approach can actually be helpful over time. Okay. I think that makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't mind getting into, at some point, what people outside of medicine can do to try to positively affect these determinants. I agree. This example was extremely chilling to me. Just thinking about this woman who has high blood pressure, but then 
she has a million other things going on that are affecting her health way more than somebody else who had a lot fewer of these social determinants of health. And I wanted us to spend a little bit of time thinking about these subcategories and how they affect her or how they've affected other patients of ours. Because it's, it is kind of staggering to think about how many different drivers of health there are outside of just somebody's body and a disease or an illness that somebody has. There's definitely different ways that people break these down, but I, I chose the one by the CDC. They have this entire program called healthypeople.gov, and it's about creating environments that are healthy for everyone versus just for some people. And I wanted us to go around kind of like an activity and go through each of these categories and maybe say one thing that we've noticed that's affected somebody's health that we've been in contact with. So there's five of them. And the first one is economic stability. Can each of you guys think of a you know, quick example of a moment where somebody's job or ability to hold a job, somebody's you know, access to food or access to stable housing or their wealth or lack of wealth has affected their health. It, so I can jump on that because in psychiatry, there are almost too many examples to count. Of course, there's this mm -hmm. downward, downward drift hypothesis in uh, people with schizophrenia that they end up losing more and more access to resources over time because of the nature of of their illness and especially in the emergency department it is so evident that people with chronic major mental illnesses are oftentimes thwarted by their inability to be gainfully employed then uh, by the the disease process itself it's crystal clear in addictions as well. It's really tragic that, especially in cases like bipolar disorder and, and the addictions that are completely treatable in theory, it's really sad to know that people's care is sometimes so limited by either poor insurance or insecure housing and other priorities starting to take precedence. I, so I hear you, Cody, saying that it kind of works both ways, too. It's like a revolving door. Like if you have a diagnosis of schizophrenia and your disease is not well controlled, you know, maybe you're somebody who has schizophrenia who is having trouble maintaining a steady job with a steady income, then it's harder for you to get the help and the health care that you need to treat your schizophrenia. And then maybe it continues to be uncontrolled. And then it starts to affect your ability to keep that job because your employer says, oh, you've been out too many days this month, or you aren't able to focus on the tasks at work. So that definitely sounds like a very dangerous downward spiral. Yeah. Yeah, I think that example is really chilling and really emblematic of the idea. I was thinking kind of to close the loop with your example you were giving, that for that patient, they lose their job, and then they're probably only access to adequate health care, maybe mental health services, maybe through um, having that job, having health insurance, if their particular job is giving that to them. That circumstance comes up 
very often as one can imagine. Um, the high costs of healthcare for the uninsured population is one thing, but even for folks who technically have health care, access to care is not always present for them either. So economic circumstances, they may be priced out of being able to get health care at a certain point. And I think even more broadly, thinking of medications, sometimes our patients can't afford certain medications that are critical to their life. A common example that's commonly brought up is for diabetic patients, insulin can be extremely expensive. I've had many patients who haven't been able to afford their insulin. So it's unfortunately, it's all too common. I'll add that I know that people who don't have food security, so um, someone who doesn't live near a grocery store, only lives maybe near convenience stores or other um, you know, fast food restaurants, it's really hard for them to stick to a low salt diet because they aren't near those fresh vegetables and healthier foods that they, they should be eating. And it's too expensive to travel further outside of where they live to get what they need. And you know that food is always more expensive than more processed food that you can get anywhere. Even when the cost can be surmounted. There are these factors of social pressure and cultural pressure. If everyone around you is eating a diet primarily of fast food, for example, I mean, you might get made fun of or ostracized um, for eating a certain way. uh, Or even you may never have been taught how to prepare these foods in a way that is interesting or appetizing. There's so much, so often a cultural component to the food that um, a lot of groups eat. This one's near and dear to my heart because my grandmother is a diabetic, and there are certain foods that are just part of our culture that are high on carbs that are just central to the diet of my people. And so she will continue to eat them despite knowing that it's harmful for her because that's just something that is intrinsic to who she is as a person. And you can imagine that example being writ large for multiple different cultures and groups and different cuisines. So these cultural elements, it's not even necessarily that you may not be able to find the food, as Kavita is saying, that is healthier, but also within your, your group, it might just be part of what you've always done and what you do. And it might be difficult to change that just because your doctor tells you to. It's infinitely easier said than done to make most healthy behavior changes. And I can see that cultural piece being huge. I've even seen examples of it being, of it affecting the best medication for a situation. Like I've heard tales that acarbose is much more widely deployed in Asian countries because of the significant presence of rice in the diet uh, for people with diabetes, and it's never really caught on here. But rice is so front and center to at least some of the cultures in those areas that they can use a completely different therapeutic approach that apparently is not as effective here uh, in the States. It's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yet, just as an FYA, Carbos is a diabetes medicine that um, kind of helps with your body not <laughs> getting a lot of sugar from all the carbs uh, that you might be eating. So it, it makes sense that for people who 
have a culture where they do eat a lot of carbs, it would be a useful medicine versus people who eat a lot of protein or fats or things like that. The second category is education. Cody and Malad, what are examples that you guys can think of of ways that somebody's education, their, what kind of education they got when they were younger, whether or not they went to college, whether or not they graduated high school, and what language they speak, and whether or not they can read and write, how that affects their healthcare. You can imagine that for some of my patients, whether they're able to read the instructions on a pill bottle will depend on a certain level of education. Unfortunately, a lot of times we as physicians don't even ask if our patients are able to read at a certain level. I've seen this happen in clinic, unfortunately, when we found out that a patient hasn't been able to take their medications for a certain amount of time, we ultimately found out that he wasn't able to read at the level required. This is much more prevalent in certain communities than we as physicians are even aware of, and it makes it all the more important to have a consideration of the social circumstances and educational circumstances of our patients in order to adequately help them. So that's a more extreme example. You can even imagine that the regular language we're using with our patients, if, if we're using overly complicated language, we may not really communicate in the best way with our patients. And that may happen a lot, particularly around difficult conversations. So it's really important to ensure that we're having a conversation that's a back and forth and not a one-sided conversation based on the educational level of our patients. It's something that I think we inadvertently do because we're so used to thinking about healthcare topics and these kinds of things that we might jump into complex words uh, like talking about acarbos without <laughs> jumping in or, or with, without properly laying the groundwork first. So I would implore patients who might be listening to stop your doctor if they are talking over your head because in the vast, vast majority of cases, I don't think that they mean to be doing that. And I think they would like to know that you're not following them. Yeah, we're not always going to have uh, Kavita around to help us out and uh, explain where uh, where we've used poor language. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah working- I'm just a simple person. I like to keep language simple <laughs> for anybody. But thank you for being so self-aware, Cody and Vlad. One thing that I think about with the examples that you guys have brought up is language and whether somebody speaks English as a first language or not. I can think of you know scenarios where maybe a doctor doesn't have access to a translator and then somebody might speak Spanish or another language, but they know a little bit of English. And then they're kind of just trying to use that limited English that the patient has and the doctor's trying to simplify as much as they can to make sure that they can get some of these points across, that is a way different discussion about starting a blood pressure medicine and what the side effects might be and what the point of the blood pressure medicine is and how often you should be checking your blood pressure. That would be very different if you were talking to somebody who had limited English without a translator versus somebody who was very fluent in English and You can talk to them very easily about that. And that always worries me, especially in psychiatry, because there's so many nuances. There's a necessity for a human connection to do a good job. It's very difficult even with a good translator or interpreter. 
I think this is also really it's really relevant in internal medicine as well with what's going on with COVID-19. A lot of communities of color have been uh, disproportionately affected. I know near our hospital is a large underserved Hispanic community, and a lot of the folks that have ended up in the hospital have required interpreter services, and really those resources were initially stretched And in response to that, a lot of providers at our hospital actually formed a group. They call them Team Juntos. And they actually were providers whose first language or second language was fluency in Spanish. And they actually became part of the care team. And in order to communicate with patients in their own language, they were able to answer questions from the medical perspective uh, without needing an extra person there. And that was a great way to work around this particular issue, particularly given the prevalence of COVID in that community. So there are ways to work around some of these disadvantages and people have come up with really innovative ways to make sure that patients are cared for in the way that they most prefer to be cared for. That's, that's another great argument for having a diverse group of physicians and other providers. Yeah. The third big category is social and community context. So how, Malad and Cody, have you seen a person's ability to participate in politics, a person facing discrimination or a person who ends up going to prison or jail or somebody who doesn't feel bonded to other people around them? How has that affected their health? In my case, going back to the emergency department, it's clear that a number of people in minority communities in Baltimore have had their health care disrupted and their life course altered by their lack of privilege. Like In a lot of cases, we will find out the legal history of a patient who comes into the psychiatric hospital and the things for which African-Americans, for example, are frequently arrested are just ridiculous, tiny offenses, like being on a bus without fare. That scenario that you've brought up of those patients in the emergency room and finding out their history, I'm sure it's very enlightening to see the kind of that upstream to downstream effects of the things we're talking about come to fruition, unfortunately, in such negative ways. Um, My experiences have been unfortunately similar and I think what we're kind of painting is different aspects of this interconnected web. But once you have a criminal record, maybe it may be difficult to find a job. Uh, There may be differences in terms of the folks that you're able to rely on for support. And you can see how those different blocks start to build and make it more difficult, not just to live a normal life, but to have the same health care access as other people. Over time, those things will certainly add up and have a negative effect on many aspects of one's life, but including their health. I agree. It's really enlightening and terrifying to see how all of these different social determinants of health, they not only build on each other, they build on your illness and your illness affects your social determinants of health. It's really convoluted web that people are living in. One thing that I can think about is the connectedness part of this. I have seen people who, you know, live alone, who don't have neighbors or friends or family members living nearby or who 
haven't spoken to their kids in multiple years and don't have strong family relationships, they a lot of times have more depression and anxiety than people who live with their families or people who live in a more support in a more supportive network. And they sometimes have trouble getting to appointments because maybe they have a big wound on their leg and it's hard for them to be able to drive themselves or nobody can help them change the dressings on that wound. So I've seen that happen time and time again. The next category that I'm thinking about, or sorry, that's on this list is health and healthcare. So Cody and Malad, how have you seen somebody's ability to access healthcare or ability to access a primary care doctor or ability to understand different topics in health? How has that affected their health? First of all, the bus system in Baltimore is atrocious, and anybody who can't drive themselves for any health-related reason. Um, I had a patient recently with epilepsy, for example, is going to have a significant problem getting around in a timely fashion unless they are privileged enough to be able to hire somebody or just Uber or taxi everywhere. The public transit system is just straight up not reliable in this city and in many other cities. I mean, heck, in most of America, there's barely a public transit system at all. So things like epilepsy, things like leg wounds, as Kavita pointed out, a number of chronic medical conditions and lots of mental health conditions will prevent people from being able to engage in healthcare. I will say that telehealth is potentially going to allow us to extend our reach, but that presents a number of its own barriers and another set of haves and have-nots that will need to be addressed if we're going to have a more just system moving forward. I know here at Hopkins, we do have um, home care services that are available to a certain subset of the population. And so at the end of the day, it becomes very important, you know, from my perspective as a general internist to really get the community health workers and the social work and case management teams on board when I see that a patient, you know, has uh, an impossible time getting to their appointments to see if there are ways that we can leverage resources state, local, national level to see if we can help that patient in those particular circumstances, because certainly they will know way more about the resources available than, than we will as physicians. So I think this goes back to kind of that point of use the other uh, providers and team members that we have, because a lot of times they'll know how to help someone in ways that we can't. Yeah. And that speaks to that this idea of interdisciplinary care that I wish we did a better job of. I know there's, there have been teams I've worked on, some of which were at Bayview, where we did sit down every day and have all these services go through the cases. But it's a shame how infrequently that happens in healthcare. Yeah, I, I would agree that it's, it's not common in most private practice clinics and even different types of clinics to have social workers and case managers and nurses all working together with doctors to see patients. I think I really appreciate that about the clinic where uh, Malad and I work, that we can ask a social worker or a community health worker, hey, this person is having trouble getting food on their plate every night. What can we do? Are there any food pantries nearby? Are there any different aid programs that they haven't applied for that they could 
be, you know, eligible for. So I think it definitely ties down to that. And I think a lot of times I personally have felt like I didn't know what somebody's role was on the team to help the patient have better health. I think that took a lot of time and a lot of asking. I had to ask the physical physical therapist, you know, what is it exactly that you do? How do you check up on the patient? How do you figure out where they need to go? And what are the best times to invest scenarios when I should ask you questions and ask you to see the patient? So I think we can definitely do a better job teaching not only people in healthcare, but also people in the community, you know, what is available to them? Who can they talk to if they're struggling with something? I would also add that, well, you make a great point, both of you, that these services aren't available necessarily to all of us as physicians at the institutions or hospitals or clinics that we work at, but there are often local resources that are available to folks who may not have that embedded into their uh, practice setting. That's very true. I think sometimes, especially when I'm visiting patients in their homes, I've learned about a lot of things, Milan, like you mentioned, like that they are getting meals on wheels, giving them dinner every night. And I, I didn't even know how you set that up or how you call them, but they've been able to do that or a friend did that for them. So I agree that there are a lot of things happening through local and state and even national government levels. I know with COVID, the city of Baltimore they decided that it was really important for people who are homeless or have unstable housing to have a safe place to quarantine if they were sick with COVID before they returned to where they were staying, like if it was a group home or if it was a homeless shelter. And they actually provided hotel rooms for all of these people who got sick with COVID and were living places where they could infect other people. So I agree, there is a lot going on that we don't know about. I think about health and healthcare in the category of primary care access. I feel like a lot of patients who I've seen come to the hospital, usually if I ask them, oh, do you have a primary care doctor? If somebody says, yes, I just saw them a month ago, I or if somebody says, no, I, I don't really go see doctors. I haven't seen a doctor in about 20 years. I get instantly more worried about the person who says the second answer because I I'm worried that they have a lot of different medical conditions that just haven't been checked up on or followed up on. And I've found, unfortunately, that they are usually a lot sicker when they come to the hospital. The last category in this framework by the CDC is neighborhood and built environment. So last question for you guys, Cody and Milad. What are things you've noticed as they relate to having the ability to access foods that are healthy, living in a place where there is or isn't a lot of crime and violence, where there are or are not environmental conditions like lead in the water or lead in the paints or pollution or quality of housing. So living somewhere that is very safe or you know where you're not having water leaking in your house or any other kind of thing that relates to housing? How have these things, how, how have you seen these things affect people's health? I could start by talking about the idea of food deserts that we kind of touched upon earlier without calling it by name. Just this idea that certain neighborhoods don't have access to uh, 
healthy foods and cost-effective foods, leading people to be sort of backed into a set of choices that may jeopardize their health down the line. And when it comes to built environment, certainly the issues of lead paint and safety issues become nearly ubiquitous. I didn't realize what a huge issue lead paint was until I began practicing here and found that lead poisoning in patients of all ages is incredibly common. And I find that unbelievably tragic, given that it's a wholly preventable form of psychiatric illness, essentially, or along with all the uh, other physical ailments that that can cause. Yeah, I think that's uh, unfortunately a really common example that we deal with. I I know that in different communities, the distance to the freshest food location has been associated with lower life expectancy and rates of obesity. And I think in in general, it makes sense to us to think about if as a patient, if as as an individual, you're only options in terms of food or from a convenience store. I think one example in terms of foods as obesity rates. So this is, there's some great research coming out of the CDC and it shows that looking at county scale obesity rates from 2004 to 2013, the average obesity rate among the hundred poorest county in, counties in the U.S. increased from 29.9% to 36.5%, but only from 21.2% to 24.6% among the 100 richest counties. So obesity rates have increase faster in poorer communities and the what the way that it's described in you know follow-up studies is the lowering cost of food calories such as sugar sweetened beverages and high fructose corn syrup foods is more prevalent in those communities and may explain that disparity so there's a lot more down that path but there's a lot of reasons to think that access to foods and particularly easier access to high-calorie, low-quality foods and less access to higher-quality foods is directly related to obesity rates. And you can imagine all the health outcomes that are secondary to that, not to mention hypertension and heart disease, other drivers of health that we can think of. I wish it was more surprising, but it is absolutely tragic and, and preventable. I don't know how we systematically go about that, but surely we've reached a point with obesity in this country where taking even heroic measures to provide good nutrition has to be cheaper than what we do when people have reached the end stage of those illnesses. Uh, I think one of the more stark examples of the differences in health outcomes by neighborhoods came from the USA LEAP project, which was coming out of the National Center for Health Studies. And what they did was they went community by community, county by county throughout the country and gathered the data for life expectancy. And all of this is available in the National Center for Health Statistics website within the CDC. Some stark contrasts in terms of life expectancy were found as a result of that. I can give an example. I went to medical school in New Orleans, and the average life expectancy nationwide at the time of the study was 79 years. Well, in one community that was a suburb of New Orleans, Jefferson Parish, 
you may live to 69 years, while in Old Metairie, which is a suburb of New Orleans, the life expectancy was 83 years. And then going down into New Orleans proper, in central New Orleans, the life expectancy is 62 years. So we're talking about different areas that are miles apart, a couple of exits apart on the highway, and you have a difference in life expectancy ranging from 62 to 88 at its most extreme. And this all comes back to all of those factors that we're discussing. And it's really the compounding of all of these factors that results in these stark differences in health outcomes. And you can break that down further by not just life expectancy, but morbidity, which is our term for all the health conditions that affect your health that may not directly lead to mortality, but certainly affect your quality of life and other health outcomes. So you can see how at its most extreme, we're literally talking about taking decades away from people and not to mention healthful living. Just the sheer magnitude of the difference is alarming. I think it'd be interesting to see like how long ago the national life expectancy was as low as it is in some of these areas, just to give an idea how much of a setback this can be. Yeah, that's a great question. I think we've now spent some really good time talking about these different social determinants of health. And I feel like I've learned all these different ways that the conditions that you live in can affect your health and the fact that they can sometimes interact with your disease and, you know, in a negative way, each one can make the other worse. And then they can interact with each other in a negative way. Each one can make the other worse. So now, Malad, I'm interested to hear some of your thoughts on what are thoughts of yourself and other people on how we address them, how we make sure that doctors are educated about them, or just ways that we can try and make this a little bit better, even though I understand that this has been going on for a long, long time and it's been shaped by history and more long-term policies? How do we make a positive impact recognizing all of this that's going on? I think we start by listening, both as physicians and as people, and we try to ask the right questions and figure out what are those circumstances that our patients are facing, but also our neighbors, folks that we live in in Baltimore with currently. Um, I think we can learn a lot, and it'll not only add to our ability to care for them as people, hopefully, but as neighbors who understand the circumstances that we're all living uh, under. I think big picture making things better is a great goal to have, but I think we need to start off by recognizing the circumstances under which we're living first until we get a better understanding of what the structural effects of longstanding policies have been on patients and other aspects of their lives. We're not going to be able to come together to come to a solution. I think Particularly important is this idea of structural competency, understanding that many factors play a role in the way that each individual experiences society, experiences life, particularly in our country. But I'm sure these circumstances are also going on in places around the world. And starting off from a point of listening, trying to understand the structural elements, trying to educate ourselves and educate the next generation of physicians and people on these elements 
is a great start. Uh, whether we can solve these problems by knowing more about them is a topic of debate. I think one one of the more commonly cited issues is this concept of implicit bias, which is the biases or the preferences or aversion to certain groups or people that we are unaware of. Um, there's a lot of focus on training about implicit bias that happened, particularly in the healthcare field, um, in the last 10 to 20 years. But a lot of the follow-up studies um, showed that there weren't necessarily positive outcomes from teaching people about implicit bias. And it makes sense that if these are long-standing issues that have been built up over our whole lives, it's not going to be easy to just wash away bias by teaching someone about it. And acknowledging that bias is a natural uh, outcome of the structural elements of society, about the differences in people, recognizing that it's a part of us and not ignoring it is a good start in and of itself. And I hope that someday we'll be able to find a way to combat those more effectively. Um, but I can't say that I can definitively tell us how to do that today. I like what you said about listening and understanding. It definitely makes me think of Brian Stevenson, the author of Just Mercy and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, um, who's also a lawyer and an activist. He, one of his main ideas for combating systemic racism is to get proximate, to you know get close to people who are suffering injustice and learn more about them in an effort to, I think, combat implicit bias and figure out a way to be useful. So I think what you say definitely makes a lot of sense. Maybe one of the first steps we can take is to just get closer to people who have different experiences than us and our patients who are going through things that we haven't gone through to learn from them, to get educated on that. So then maybe the next time we see a patient who has a lot of medicines, we might start to ask more routinely, oh, by the way, you know, what's your reading level? I want to make sure that you can read these instructions that I'm giving you or that you know, what I've said is understandable to you or the next time that we notice that a patient is always late to an appointment, we think, oh, you know, how are you getting here? Is somebody dropping you off? Are you taking the mobility bus? Are you switching three buses before you get here? Are you having trouble walking because of that wound on your leg? So I think that is really valuable. A sidebar, what do you, th what, what do you think we should talk about now? I feel like we've covered a lot of the topics in the questions. And yeah, I, I wonder if like, what does a healthy community look like? Whether that means everybody's got access to the same resources or people who are disproportionately affected have more. I mean, I, I, I think maybe my takeaway point, both from the SJM statement and in general would be like identifying that this is a potential pivotal point in our country um, broadly and that all of us can leverage our resources, our connections, and advocate for those who may not have the ability to advocate for themselves and partner with them when they tell us that they need help. And I think part of the idea of listening is 
doing our part and not standing on the sidelines. This Society of General Internal Medicine statement, the goal of this is to say that we are not standing on the sidelines as physicians, that we're on the front lines and we're willing to advocate, we're willing to fight for structural change, uh, and we're calling it for what it is, but we're not just identifying it. We're going to take the next steps necessary in order to make it better for the future generations. I would extend the sentiment, I hope, by saying that the patients that I hope will hear these words, we want to partner with you to learn more about how we can be better doctors to you and help you get your health to the place that you want it to be. And we as providers need to move away from seeing people as individuals, although that's a noble goal in and of itself, and see people as interconnected. Because it's easy to see that somebody doesn't show a few times and start to judge them and become cynical and check out and have this what we call therapeutic nihilism where you start to lose hope that you're going to be able to help somebody. But if there is a deeper reason, even if we can't fix it in a 15-minute visit, it is something that clearly physicians like Milad want to know about so that the next time uh, someone is in that kind of situation, there's maybe a little bit more in place at the societal level. I kind yeah, of lost it there. No, no, I think, no, I mean, these are like, it's like, it's like deep, complex, like that's, we're all like struggling with it ourselves, right? It's like, I feel like we're, as a country going through what you just went through, Cody, which is trying to put a name and trying to express this idea of, this is wrong and I've seen the consequences of it. You've seen it as a physician, as a human. And now it's like, okay, let's take a step back. What do we do? Yeah. Um, and, and this is where as a society, we're going to have to decide what our values are. I mean, going back to one of the silliest things that COVID has laid bare, what sense does it make to tie healthcare to employment? If you, step back and look at what that policy means, it kind of implies that people who work deserve health care and people who don't work only deserve health care if they are old or extremely poor. Uh, I'm not sure that I like that. I don't think that's how I would set up a society. And thankfully, we live in a democratic society where if enough people decide that a policy is really stupid, uh, a new policy could be put in place. Well, Malad, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. I learned so much, and I think it was really helpful to hear about how a society of leaders can come up with some unifying ideas and how those ideas actually play out to our patients and people in the community and then ways that we can kind of grapple with and sit with this conflict instead of thinking of a quick solution or dismissing it. And it's left me with some realistic goals and objectives, which I think is very useful. And it was really great to talk to you today. Thank you very much for uh, speaking with us, Milad. And I hope you'll come back and speak with us in the future. And maybe by then some strides will have been made on this front. Yeah, no, thank you guys for having me on. I'm also uh, optimistic that 
um, these conversations are going to lead to changes that will mitigate some of these structural issues that have gone on for far too long. And I'm happy to come back someday and talk about those in the future. But thank you guys for talking about these issues and teaching us all. Um, and I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Thank you very much. I hope that everybody enjoyed listening to that episode with Cody, Malad, and I. We definitely enjoyed ourselves, as you could probably tell from our wandering conversations. I will say, though, that this episode really helps me reflect on social determinants of health, and I hope that it gave you all the space to do so as well. If you have thoughts on the episode, health questions, or suggestions for what our next podcast topic should be, please reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram. Um, our handle is Against Disease, or on Facebook, which you can find our group page by searching for Humanity Against Disease. Otherwise, I look forward to hearing from you and hope that you all are doing the best you can in this crazy world we're living in right now.